Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Packwell, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, a program where we try to teach on the basis of that great passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, Hold on to the traditions which I left you, whether by word or by letter. And we seek to study both the oral tradition of the apostles and the written tradition, known as sacred scripture. Now, of course, we want you to be part of the program by adding your questions or comments. You can do that by calling during the live show, which is on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And the phone number you can call if you are in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call in, but the number that will work is not the 800 number. It is country code 1, area code 205, 271 of course, you can send us your questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, we are going to start to look at the beginning of our Lord Jesus' public ministry and how the same Holy Spirit that hovered over him in the Jordan and who led him out to the desert to be tempted is now the source of power in his public ministry. And we'll also look at how Christ, who is described in Hebrews 9 as greater and perfect tent not made by hands, still honored the Jewish tradition of attending synagogue. So let's take a look at a passage. Now, we see that Saint Matthew, whom we've been studying so far in regard to the baptism and the temptation, also says that after the temptations, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went to dwell in Capernaum by the sea. That's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. So it mentions him going into Nazareth, excuse me, into Galilee, which is the northern part of the country. The Sea of Galilee, of course, is one of the main features of the region, but it refers to the territory north of Samaria. And it's still called Galilee today. 
And apparently he had gone to Nazareth. St. Matthew is aware of that as his first step. And then he left Nazareth, went to uh, Capernaum. But St. Luke, excuse me, St. Mark doesn't tell us anything about what happened in Nazareth. Mentions he went there, but not what happened while he was there. And then we see that St. John is the only evangelist to mention the wedding feast at Cana. And Cana is close to Nazareth. It's about nine miles to the north. Um, so where do we find what happened in Nazareth? Well, we go to Luke. St. Luke wrote about that in Luke chapter 4. And we'll begin the first section today by taking a look at this summary of our Lord's ministry that St. Luke has. This is sort of an editorial comment. It's not the words of Jesus, it's St. Luke summarizing what's going on. And he says there, and then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, same thing that St. Matthew said, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So this is a short summary of what the Lord had done. Now, this is uh, uh, very important that when St. Luke gives this summary on Jesus preaching in the synagogues, it highlights his return in the power of the Holy Spirit. And St. Luke is sometimes called the evangelist of the Holy Spirit. He was very aware of the power of the Holy Spirit and wrote about it more than the other Gospels, wrote about the Lord Holy Spirit uh, very frequently. For instance, it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where the angel Gabriel says to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. So, first thing in connection with Jesus is that the Holy Spirit is the one by whom his mother conceived him in his womb. There's no man involved. It's the Holy Spirit overshadowing her hovering in some ways like at creation and also when Jesus is in the Jordan River. We also see that the same Holy Spirit fills both John the Baptist while he's in his mother's womb and fills his mother Elizabeth. You see that in Luke 1, 41 to 45, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the greeting, the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb 
leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Notice that the Holy Spirit inspires Elizabeth to speak while he's working even in the infant, John the Baptist, who is still inside the womb. And by the way, this good indication that babies inside the womb are not blobs of tissue. You know, that is the ideology by very evil people who want women to kill their children in the womb so they don't tell them the truth by just calling them a blob of tissue. No, they're, they're babies with arms, fingers, fingerprints, eyes, ears, heart, you know, toes, all the, all the parts are there. Um, so that's not a blob, that's a little boy jumping up and down in his mother's womb and the Holy Spirit is able to act upon him as well as give his mother these three beatitudes. Blessed is the, the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is she who believed all that was said to her. It was the same Holy Spirit that led Simeon into the temple and filled him with prophetic words in Luke 2, verses 25 to 35, where he proclaims a hymn that we, in the Roman rite of the Catholic Church, is said every night at night prayer. Now, Lord, you may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. We also see, as I mentioned, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. And then in Luke uh, uh, 3.22, as it, just as in Matthew 3.16, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the bodily form like a dove. And then the voice from, of the Father spoke and said, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Well, the Holy Spirit also led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, both in Luke and in Matthew. And then we also see that in St. Luke's second book, which is Acts of the Apostles, he wrote that too. You see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that all the disciples were gathered in one place on Pentecost, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. And throughout Acts of the Apostles, the, the Holy Spirit continues acting. And this is, St. Luke makes this summary statement here. But one of the reasons for it is in chapter 4, verse 18 of Luke, the Lord quotes the prophet Isaiah and says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of favor of the Lord. And then he sits down and says, this is fulfilled in your midst. Now, 
this is very important for us as well because what we see here is that our Lord Jesus is the model for all of us Christians. That the Holy Spirit leads Jesus and empowers him and then he does the same for us. The Holy Spirit wants to lead and guide us and empower us. So, and this happens in a variety of ways. First of all, we can see that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it possible for us to live the Christian virtues. We can't do it on our own power by ourselves. That's why St. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, where he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against such things because they're virtues. So we need His help in living those virtues, and the Holy Spirit is the one who will point us to our vocations in marriage, and family, religious life, but He's also the one who's going to give us the grace to live out those vocations. And even when we don't feel like people appreciate what we're doing, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the grace to be faithful and generous even in the face of a lack of appreciation. If you're called to the priesthood or religious life, this the kind of holiness that belongs to each different religious community or to the diocesan priesthood, that is not a human accomplishment. It's the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we need that. Another thing that's very important about how Jesus models the Holy Spirit for us and receiving Him, the Holy Spirit gives Jesus power, but He also is the one who gives us the power we need to be able to do the service and ministry that we are. A lot of people are very timid about speaking up to defend the faith, especially in our modern cancel culture. There's so many places today where if you speak up about our faith and our morals in particular, they, they might say, oh, well, you can talk about Jesus, that's okay. But don't say that Christian morality is true, especially when it comes to the sexual realm and they don't want to hear it. So a lot of us become afraid. We try to avoid criticizing sinful behavior because we don't want to be called judgmental. And for a lot of people in the contemporary world, being called judgmental is even worse than doing abortions or getting an abortion or committing fornication or adultery. That's okay but not being judgmental. We won't put up with that. And you know, take a look at how P 
people have been criticized on places like Twitter and such. And so, uh, and even lying, you know, when public officials lie to us and get caught, well, they're just trying to, they get justified, but if you're judgmental, no way. Sometimes we also see that Christians are afraid to help the poor because they don't want to keep doing it. I, I don't mind giving them something now, but what if I have to keep coming back and help them some more? Or what if I need to adopt a kid? What do I do then? That's too much. And we fear the commitment it might take to serve the poor. It is precisely at these moments of timidity, fear, and a fear of commitment that the Holy Spirit comes into us in our weakness and he gives us strength, he gives us knowledge and wisdom and he gives us a love that goes beyond our natural inclinations but a love that continues to love even when the other person is not lovely. This is his work and we are not always so supple before the Holy Spirit. We don't always want to do what he wants us to do. But as happened for the apostles, he will help us grow and mature in this kind of service. And the Holy Spirit will help us to become saints. So what I would do is picture our Lord coming from the Jordan River to Galilee Imagine what that would be like. Would you be able to see the Holy Spirit in him? Probably, I don't think so. But people knew there was a report about him and people glorified him as he taught. What do you think they saw? How did they detect this power of God? I urge you to think about that and take some time with it in your own prayer. And then take a look at your own life. In what way has the Holy Spirit empowered you to live the virtues of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, and self-control? And how has he given you an empowering to be able to do the service of the church Think about this too. If you have already received the gift of confirmation or chrismation, then ask the Lord to stir up that gift. Increase that gift. And if you haven't been concerned, uh, confirmed, then go and seek out getting that sacrament and ask for a greater empowerment by the Holy Spirit or a release of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. And then he be prepared to realize that he will probably be as invisible in your life as he was in Jesus. And yet, just as with Jesus, the effects of the power of the Holy Spirit cause people to report upon it. And we should also expect that the effects of the Holy Spirit will be seen. Even consider, and which of the fruits of the Spirit do you need to grow in the most? More love? More joy? 
As Mother Angelica used to say, some people look like they were baptized in pickle juice. You know, do you need joy and peace? Patience? Do you need more patience? Most of us do. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. Which, of the lives, which do I need the most? And ask the Holy Spirit for that. I recommend the prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did teach the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same spirit to have a right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, we'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about our Lord going into the synagogue in Nazareth. So please stay with us. to go to the next verses. And this is where St. Luke is setting the scene of the synagogue in Nazareth. So we're going to look only at Luke 4, verses 16 to 17, where it says, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. All right, there's a lot of interesting little information here. So let's take a look at it. First, we know that after the presentation in the temple in Luke 2, verses 39 to 40, uh, when they finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then also after the finding of the child Jesus in the temple in Luke 2, 51 to 52, it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. So you see that he goes back to Nazareth. And in fact, at the time of Christ, the archaeologists have done a lot of work in Nazareth, excavating, partly as part of renovations on some of the church property in Nazareth. And as they did so, they 
figured that there were about three or four hundred people living in Nazareth at the time of Christ. It wasn't a very old uh, town. Uh, it had been founded maybe uh, the, the uh, first century BC. Uh, so it's not in the Old Testament. Um, a lot of the houses you can still see when you go there. They've, when I say they've uncovered this, there's a lot. You can see some of the ancient houses from the time of Christ. Why? Because they were caves. People would frequently uh, live in a cave uh, with an extension in front of it, a building they put in front of the cave. Caves are cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter. So a lot of people lived in them. So our Lord was kind of a caveman. He's born in a cave in Bethlehem and uh, lived in a cave. Now, why are there so many caves, by the way? Well, because Israel used to be completely under the ocean. About 35 million years ago, the whole country was covered by the sea. They had a very bad case of global warming. And for about 5 million years, the whole country was covered by the sea and Jordan was the beach. That's why there's so much limestone there. It all comes from being under the ocean for so many uh, millions of years. And when the water receded, it didn't just go away. It receded back and forth, coming up and then going back down a bit more until uh, finally the ice caps grew again. The land was revealed and as a result of that back and forth, there was a lot of caves. That's, that's all that's going on. Now, the name Nazareth comes from a Hebrew root, Netzer. Netzer, so you would, in Hebrew, you said Nazaret, Nazaret, not Nazareth. Um, this comes from the Hebrew word Netzer, meaning a shoot from a, from a tree. And it's probably connected with Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, a netzer, that is a shoot, shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Isaiah was saying that the family of David was going to be cut down, the family tree is going to be cut down, but there would be a new shoot coming out of the stump of the uh, family tree of Jesse. And that's a prophecy about the Messiah who would come from David's family, but not the main branch that had been the kings. And so um, this is probably a name that they uh, used to indicate they were expecting the Messiah. Now, Jesus went to synagogue on a regular basis. Keep in mind that the synagogue was a Pharisee institution for studying scripture and getting explanations of scripture and its meaning. Not only our Lord, but the early church also went to synagogues. You see that in Acts of the Apostles. And it was more than a place for worship. This is a place where Christ taught about repentance. You see in Luke 4.15, uh, which we looked at already today, he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So that's, you know, was part of it. And he talked about the coming of the kingdom of God in the synagogues. Now, you also see that he was given a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The Pharisees 
had a lectionary cycle that they would read, for, and they still do, by the way, they would read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they'd go through all of that because that's the core of the whole Old Testament. But then they would also have haftarot. These are readings from the prophets and the Psalms that supplemented the texts of the Torah. And that the haftarah cycle um, uh, is, is, was going on. Now, we don't know exactly what was in the cycle, so we have to be careful about that. But apparently when our Lord came to the synagogue, they're reading from Isaiah. Um, and it's just like in John chapter 8, verses 6 and 9, it shows that the Lord can read. He knew how to read, um, you know, so that, um, uh, that that was part of his ability. Not everybody could in those days, but our Lord did know how to read and write. So at this point, let's reflect a little bit on our Lord's custom of weekly attendance at the synagogue in that he regularly went there to read the scripture and preach to the people. They were accustomed to him reading. Could it, you know, there's some people who read really well and you like to hear them read to you because they're so good at it. Well, our Lord was probably one, exactly one of those kind of people and people wanted to hear them. Now, this is something for our own selves to reflect on because today, and especially after COVID, there are still a lot of people who say, well, you know, I guess, you know, the church didn't really think we needed to be there, so I don't feel like going back. I'm not, you know, plague is maybe, you know, mitigated, but I'm not going back to church. They didn't think, seem to need me then. No. You think you're better than Jesus? What's wrong with you? Our Lord made it one of the commandments to go to church. Now, if you're sick, you know, of course you don't go. Uh, sometimes if you're disabled, you can't. Though it would be good for parishes, if you talk about ministry, have a ministry to bring the disabled to church so they can get to Mass or bring church to them. But... Even if you say that, you know, hey, I don't get anything out of it. You know, our Lord went there to give something to the synagogue service. He contributed to it. Don't be whining that I don't get anything out of it. What are you doing to contribute to Sunday Mass? By your prayerfulness? If you go there, you say, yeah, but there's a bunch of hypocrites. Good. Go there and start praying for them. If you see people who are angry, I, I do this. When I, I get to see faces, you see backs of heads. I look at the faces, and I can tell some people are miserable. Those are the ones I pray for, especially. And all of us need to do that so you can contribute. And so our Lord had the habit of weekly attendance at the synagogue, I think each one of us can do the same, if not even more often, especially during Lent. And take a look at the quality of your mass attendance, not just that you go, but the quality of it. Are you alert to the scripture? Do you pay attention to the Bible passages being read? 
Do you prepare yourself by reading them before you get? There are apps you can get for free on, in your phones and stuff, and the readings of every day are available to you to look at ahead of time. It's good to reflect on them after Sunday. If you have this in your phone, then keep reflecting on it or prepare for Sunday by reflecting on it. And look for ways that you can apply the scripture to yourself because next week when we come back to this, we'll see that our Lord applied the scripture to himself. And he very much saw the synagogue as a place for mission to the people of Israel. And we need to see our attendance at Mass as part of our mission, no matter how old you are or how young you are. See it as a mission to help people become more prayerful. Or as part of attending Mass afterwards or beforehand, help with catechism to different age groups. Uh, you'll learn more as you do this. Or maybe you can go visit the shut-ins. After you finish Mass, go and tell them, well, Father was less boring than usual, <laughs> or he had a good sermon this week, uh, and maybe bring them Holy Communion, maybe read the Scripture with them. You'll be helped by doing that. If you make your attendance at church your mission and extend it beyond church, that's what the word Mass means. It comes from the Latin, Go, the Mass is ended, ite misa est. And it literally means go, you are sent. And this is what we are sent to do. And in so doing, we will grow and mature in our faith. So just try to picture coming to your Sunday Mass at your local parish and imagine Jesus sitting in the pew next to you he just sits down with you. Try to picture that. And what would he ask you to do for him? As he sits down next to you, speak to him about, you know, what you're doing in this stage of your life and what he would like you to do. And talk to him like you would to a friend. Imagine him speaking to you as a friend. What would he ask? And see how willing you are to maybe do what he would ask you to do. And again, conclude that with the great prayer, the soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood from the side of Christ, wash, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me. Oh, good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. And from the wicked foe, defend me. This prayer be a good way to conclude your meditation. All right. Next week, we'll take a look at our Lord's uh, reading of the prophet Isaiah. But what I'd like to do today is take a look at an email, some emails. Now, we have one from Jane. I've got to get my emails out. Um, it says, Father Mitch, some of the readings that we had recently were from the book of James. The name James is so English. 
And it's hard to believe the footnotes that state that he was not an apostle, but a relative of Jesus and called a brother of the Lord. In fact, there doesn't seem to be any Jewish people named James before this. Seems some Jewish names changed to English names. Could you explain the name James and how he got to, how he could be a brother of Jesus? Jane. All right, Jane. You got to think about it. How do you say James in French? Isn't it Jacques with a Q? And how do you say James in some of the Slavic language, like Polish? It's Jakub. And in Latin, it's Jacobus. In Hebrew, it is Yaakov or Jacob. Jacob is the way you say James. And it gets translated into English. There are a variety of reasons for that uh, change to James comes along, but it is the name Jacob. Don't be surprised that some Jewish parents named their child Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham and, one of the, and the father of the 12 tribes. It's a very wonderful and honored name. It just becomes James in English. And then the way that James is a brother of the Lord, you see in uh, Matthew, well, Matthew 15 and in Mark 6, that Jesus' brothers are James and Joses. But later on, we see in the same Gospels that there is a woman at the cross who's the mother. Her name is Mary, and she is the mother of James and Joses, but not the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's another lady. In fact, in the Gospel of John, she is called the wife of Clopas, who is the man that was walking on the way to Emmaus. And that this brother of the Lord is a son of a woman named Mary and her husband Clopas, and according to St. Hegesippus, a second century uh, Jewish convert, we see that Clopas was the brother of St. Joseph. And therefore, Clopas was an uncle of Jesus and Mary was his aunt and their son, James and Joses, were his cousins. That's what's going on there. So that's how you get some of that. All right, we're going to take a break. We have some callers coming in, so please stay with us. We'll be right with you.
right, we are back and just want to take a look at an email that I had that's uh, going to be relating to a show, uh, a guest we plan to have for next week. Um, uh, I've been reading his book uh, about the apostles and this is quite uh, relevant. It says, Dear Father Mitch, recently the gospel according, uh, re gospel reading from St. Mark uh, chapter 4, verses 10 to 12 says that only the apostles can know and understand what Jesus means by his parables, but not anyone outside the select apostles. Why does Jesus not want everyone to have the same understanding and clear explanation as the apostles receive? Why does Jesus cloud his message to us in parables such that they may look and see but not perceive and hear and listen but not understand in order that they men might not be converted and forgiven? Well, Steve, you ask a very important question. And I think that this guest that we have uh, next week in his book on the apostles um, has, uh, it'll be Rod Bennett, and his book is called These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. Uh, fine book, you'll get, get it in our EWTN catalog. Um, in there, he talks about how not only in this passage, but throughout the history of the early church, the apostles, disciples, and later on the various bishops and priests did not give all the deepest parts of the Christian faith to the catechumens. They only gave them some basics because one of the realities is this. In order to understand the deeper elements of what Christ is saying, a person also has to have the right attitude. And, you know, this is something that um, is very important, that they, they wanted people to be able to have a moral change so that their minds could receive the gospel. If they're not ready yet, they won't be able to understand it. Our Lord had been already training the apostles, correcting them, giving them this teaching that was beginning to transform them so that they could get it. But even they had trouble. As you see, they keep asking questions. Well, what does that mean? They still needed to keep growing so that they could understand. And there is this reality that we need to have our souls you know, more and more purified of sin because sin blocks us from being able to understand what's happening in the gospel message. So this is a part of the process. It's that need for purification. He would send the apostles to do that for the folks as well as he was teaching them. But as you look in the Gospels, you see the difficulty shows up because selfishness and various other sins cloud the mind from being able to understand. So you have to prepare them first, okay? All right, now we have a caller. Hello, Linda. Hi, Father Takwa. How are you doing? I'm well, thank Where are you calling from? Upstate New York, Albany Diocese. Okay, great. And what can we do for you? 
Okay, I'll try to make this as short as possible. Okay. Uh, involved. I have a brother who's 50 years old, and he wants to get married. He has had a divorce, and <clears throat> unfortunately, he does not really want to face the past, plus he's got some dementia, so he hasn't been able mm-hmm. to do the papers to get the annulment. I told him I would help him. Yeah. Very anxious to get married. They've been living together, and when I mentioned it, basically, he he says she's a good Catholic. It, it's all good, and she thinks she has a great relationship with God, so there's no problem. And um, they want me to go to the wedding. Yeah. And so, I said, I don't think I can do that. And they have a priest who's willing to marry them doesn't understand why the church is asking them to get an annulment and okay well I want to get to a couple other callers I understand um, I don't understand what I don't understand is why the priest has agreed to do this what was he thinking and you may need to send a little bit of uh, a letter to Father and see, ask him what's going on here. Um, the, the man does not have an annulment, and we don't know if his what marriage could be annulled or not. And you have been trying to help him with that, and so far, given his limitations and all, he hasn't seemed to accept it. And he thinks that because his girlfriend and fiance now uh, has some, you know, uh, uh, feels that she has a good relationship with God, that it's okay to break God's law. You know, that didn't work for the apostles. When our Lord thought that they were doing something wrong, he corrected them. And that's his way. No, he doesn't want us to say, oh, I like you and you like me. Um, it'll sound like a little kid's TV show in a minute. But, you know, it, it's not about that, that the Lord loves you and that you love the Lord. It's also being in right order. And this is something that, um, you know, I would talk to the priest if you can. You may want to lace a couple things out on paper form so that he can get more of the picture because um, that doesn't sound right. doesn't sound right at all. All right. Let's uh, go. We have an email from John. Um, John writes, Dear Father, our only daughter announced to us after graduating from college that she is a lesbian. After a number of different girlfriends, she settled down with Molly. They were married in the state of Wisconsin through a civil union and are currently discussing artificial insemination, presumably so that they could um, have a child. I've prayed for her so often that she turned her lifestyle around but I'm afraid if she continues this way, she's doomed in the church's mind. Is there any hope for her? Well, here, 
you know, a, a couple things, John, that you have to keep in mind. A, it's not that the church's mind dooms her. It's rather that she is doing something that is contrary to uh, nature. Um, this is, you know, not, uh, it's not the way that somebody has a child. It's not a, a proper sexual relationship. And it, it, she's just going flat against human nature here. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's not about the church's mind. It's about the reality. But that does not mean that there's no hope for her. Lots of people, remember, uh, St. Augustine shacked up with his girlfriend for 14 years. His only child was a child he had by her. And then when he came to the possibility of a better marriage, he dumped his girlfriend and was waiting to get married to this rich girl and, uh, and sent the, his girlfriend back to Africa. Um, you know, and then while he was in between that his, his former girlfriend and his future wife, he was going to prostitutes. Nothing looked very good about this kid. Augustine was not living a very good life. But his mother never stopped praying for him. Never stopped. And she followed him around. And eventually, her prayers were answered as the Bishop of Milan, where he was living, preached so well that he became open to the faith. And then finally, in an act of grace, he had a conversion. So St. Ambrose, the bishop, was a very big help and later on baptized him. But he also had this motion of grace. Don't cut her off, you know, from your prayers. Keep your prayer constant. Stay calm. Don't panic. And trust that our Lord could do, a, make that same Augustine into one of the greatest doctors of the church's history ever. And he can work with your daughter. Okay? I'm sure of it. I'll keep her in my prayers too. All right, we have another caller. Hello, Angel. Hello? Hi, how are you? I'm well. Where are you calling from? Well, you will love this. Cicero, Illinois. You're from Illinois. Great. So what can we do for you? We, we miss your beautiful mass. And um, I had two questions, actually. I'll, I have, I'll say the, the, the easy one for you. Um, sure. If you ever, if you ever are sleeping and you have an out-of-body experience where you're floating while you're sleeping and then you go back in your body when you wake up, uh -huh. what is that? What is that experience? Is that a heavenly experience or is that normal? No, I don't know much about such an experience. Um, 
I don't know if that is something that happens in a dream or not, so I can't really respond to that. You know, normally, I mean, your soul doesn't leave your body until it's time to, for the Lord to call you home, but it could be an ex, you know, some other kind of experience. What's your second question? Sorry about that. Um, Putin has warheads, and I was wondering the best way for everyday people like us to prepare for heaven, the best way every day daily to prepare. Sure. Here's, here's one of the things. Our task is to pray for Mr. Putin, for the people of Russia, to have a turn away from the invasion of Ukraine and the grave evils they are doing. We see now proof positive that they're committing atrocities as they withdraw uh, from some areas. And we'll see more of these atrocities, I'm sorry to say. We have to pray for him. And we don't know if he wants to get into a bigger war than this. He can't handle the invasion of Ukraine. So pray for him to have a softening and change of his heart. And for the rest, just go about your Christian duty, being ready to meet the Lord whenever he calls. And, you know, I have this uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic uh, icon of Our Lady of Fatima here on my desk. And these are prayers uh, from the Ukrainian Greek Catholics. I'd like to pray in the, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Blessed Mother, you stood beneath the cross of your son on Calvary and the prophecy of Simeon concerning the sword that would pierce your heart was fulfilled. At Fatima, you asked for a spirit of sacrifice for us to bear our daily crosses and offer them for the salvation of sinners throughout the world. We as we fulfill your injunction and meditate on your sorrow and the passion of Christ, we cry out, Lord, have mercy. Almighty God, have mercy on you and bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.